Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we ask as we uh, think about this unusual story this morning, that you would show us who the Lord Jesus is. And Father, as we see who He is, please would you show us who we are, that we might know how to live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everybody has a crazy fishing story, right? I mean, it might not be your own. It might be one you've heard. But I feel like it's like hand injury stories. Everyone has one. Everyone has a crazy fishing story. Now, um, I need your help. Do you want me to tell you the full story of my craziest fishing story or, or just the abridged version? Do you want it this big or do you want it this big? <laughs> uh, I, 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 look, I'm going to tell you the long one anyway. You never had a choice. I was 13, 14 years old. I had a friend, my best mate, whose family were avid fishermen, the sort of fishermen who would get up at 3 a.m. to have the boat on the water by sunrise, spend the entire day fishing, and be home way after dark. Right? That kind of family. I got to come along once. We piled into the boat. We got up at some ungodly hour, drove the 40 minutes down to the Paraná River, which is one of those massive South American, you know, two kilometres across kind of things. Boat goes in, we start heading out, and we thought we'd set some snares. Basically a two metre long piece of rope with a hook about this big on it, a live fish this big as the bait. Right? We set half a dozen of them, you tie it to a branch, you just chuck it in the water, you leave it for the day and off you go. We went and spent the day on the water. We fished and we fished and we fished. And we fished. We used bait, we used lures, we went trawling, we tried chum, we did everything and we did not catch a single fish the entire day. The most exciting thing that happened was when we busted out the salami and crackers, right? Like it was just <laughs> depressing. It's getting dark, we're heading home, no hope of anything. Let's just pull the lures, the, the, the snares in and let's go home. Right? Number one, empty. Number two, empty. The bait's gone, right? The hook is shiny and clean. There's nothing on there. Number three, number four, nothing on there. Number five, there's nothing. Whoa, hang on a second. As you start pulling that one up, it felt like there was nothing on there. But suddenly, out of the brown water, a head appeared. Like a full-on monster the guy was pulling it in let go and grabbed it again it was still tied to the tree thankfully and out came a monster uh, called a surubi it's a type of catfish that uh that was as long as i was tall at the age of 13. Um, this isn't the actual photo there is a photo of it that exists i don't have the photo sadly but that's the sort of thing we're talking about right we managed to get it into the boat and it took up the entire length of the inside of the boat. We couldn't believe it. it, it obviously, it had caught itself very early in the day because it put up no fight. It would just tie it out. It was done. We got in the car. We go home. My mate's mum, who was way too sensible to come on these fishing adventures with us, stayed home. And she didn't believe that we'd caught it. Because when we arrived and we said we caught nothing all day but this, she went, yeah, right, you just stopped at the fish markets, didn't you? Like, someone else caught it and you bought it off them. But we did. What an adventure. What a crazy fishing story. Now, I'm sure you've got your own. You, you've, you've heard them. You've told them, right? The fish was this big. The, the angler was so inexperienced. We caught it without even thinking about it. Whatever the craziness of the story is, today's story somehow manages to be crazier than them all. I don't know if the passage was read for us, that last passage in Matthew there, where you're sitting there thinking, what on earth is the preacher going to do with this today? <laughs> Has anyone heard a sermon on this passage before? I wouldn't have thought so. It's so strange, isn't it? I mean, the more you read it, it's almost like the stranger it gets. 
The miracle itself is so strange. Peter, go fishing. And Peter's thinking, you beaut, right? He was a fisherman before he followed Jesus. A happy days on the water. And he says, just throw a hook in and the first fish you catch is going to have a coin in its mouth. What do you mean? Like, do all the fish in the lake have coins in their mouths for this exact moment in time? How does Jesus line it up so that wherever it is that Peter ends up, he didn't tell him where to go, he happens to catch the one fish that has the exact coin in its mouth that they need. The nature of the miracle seems strange. You think about Jesus' miracles, usually they show compassion on the lost. They show mercy. They show the, the bringing in of God's kingdom. This, this one? What? In fact, it almost seems to be counter to the other miracles because Jesus seems to be using nature to meet his own needs something that he very explicitly would not do. I don't remember when Jesus tempted him in the desert, he says, turn the stone into bread. The guy had been fasting for 40 days, he says, no. And yet here it seems he's using nature to satisfy himself. Even the events around it all are really strange. Peter, presumably, is the only one who actually saw the miracle happen. I mean, he goes fishing, catches a fish, no one else is there with him. But, but even then, we're not even told that the miracle happened. <laughs> Did you notice? Jesus tells Peter, go and do this thing. All the other miracles, we hear about it. But this one, it's such a small amount of money. I mean, why the fish at all? Why didn't he just say, go to Judas, who keeps the purse, and get out one, the coin that we need, the double drachma, and go and pay the tax? I mean, why the whole fish at all? And what is this conversation that he has about? Now, it's a weird passage, isn't it? It's strange, it's unusual, it's quirky. But I'll tell you what, it is incredibly profound. As is so often the way, those sort of strange, unusual ones. In this passage, we get to see who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, who he thinks we are, and how we should live in response. You ready? We're going to get all of that out of this passage about taxes and fishing. Now, let's get into it. The story is really simple, but the details matter. So I'm going to read through it again. I'm just going to start from verse 24. We're going to come back to those couple of verses before in a minute, but we'll go from verse 24. They came to Capernaum. This is kind of home base. And those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Well, yes, he said. Now let's just stop there for a minute and, and think about these details. Okay? The tax in question wasn't a Roman tax. This isn't like your, your income tax. You're not paying it to the government. They're not coming to collect your, uh, your sole trader tax or your whatever it is. Right? This was a temple tax. This was a Jewish tax. In fact, this is the one we read about from Exodus chapter 30. It was established in Moses' time as part of the census. This was a way that you were counted as a member of the family of God. You get ticked off, yes, he belongs to this family, and you pay your half shekel, you pay your temple tax, which was supposed to be a symbol, I guess, a symbol of belonging to God's people, you were counted by this tax, but also a symbol that reminded you that you owed God, you needed atonement. To belong to God's family your sin had to be paid for. I, I, I was trying to think of an illustration. I don't know if communion almost kind of works. 
Maybe someone will come and yell at me afterwards, I don't know. But it's this symbol that reminds us that what we need is atonement. What we need is the blood and the body of Christ. Now, in our case, that has been paid. In theirs, this temple tax reminded them, you are not right with God until you have atoned. And every single Jewish male paid it. It wasn't an optional tax. It was if you belong to the people of God, you pay it. So Peter answers, well, of course Jesus pays it, right? <clears throat> every Jewish man, of course Jesus is part of God's... I mean, look, maybe he just wanted to avoid embarrassment. I don't know. Well, of course he's going to pay it. Isn't the answer obvious? Yes, he answered in verse 25. So it's unexpected when Jesus intervenes. Have a look in verse 25 as we continue. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Maybe they were just outside the window. Jesus heard it happen. Or maybe he knew. And he asks him a weird question. Seems to be a bit of left field. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Well, from strangers, he said. That's kind of an obvious question. I mean, we've got to think about it. We're, we're not used to thinking this way, but kings, not, not, again, not our kind of monarchy, but you think old-style feudal kind of kings, they collected taxes from the people in order to support their family. That, that's how they supported themselves and their own, right? You don't tax your family to support the people. You tax the people. To Think about government for a moment, right? perhaps a little bit more analogous. The government doesn't tax itself to pay for us, does it? That'd be kind of nice. <laughs> I mean, if there was a country where that happened, we'd all go and live there, wouldn't we? Right? No, the government taxes the people to pay for itself. That's how it works. And so Peter's answer is obvious. Well, of course, the king taxes strangers to pay for his sons. The son of the king doesn't get taxed. The household of the king gets provided for out of these taxes well of course Jesus says so therefore the sons are free and I can't help but wonder if Jesus didn't just let that one hang for a bit hang on a second Jesus what are you claiming We're talking about the tax that is owed to God. You are saying that the son of the king doesn't pay that tax. The son is free. Jesus, who do you think you are? Do you get the implication? That Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. He is claiming <clears throat> to be the one that the temple tax is for. It's for him. He is the household of God. He doesn't pay the tax. Peter, you're wrong. Jesus, he doesn't need a reminder of atonement, that you have to atone, you have to pay to belong to God's family. You have to be made right with God. It's a very strange thing, right? To, to become a member of God's family requires your sin to be dealt with. It requires the forgiveness of God. It requires atonement. Church is a very strange place. I don't know if you've ever realised that. <laughs> Maybe you have, but I, I mean it in a very particular way, not just the people. 
Church is a very strange place. There's nowhere else in life that in order to walk in the door and participate and belong, you have to walk in and declare that you are immoral. I mean, just think about it, right? You go to the golf club, you're like, hey, I'd like to become a member. Imagine if they said to you, well, how, how immoral are you, sir? Ma'am, can you tell us the bad things you have done? No, right? The golf club gets two or three of your mates to lie and say how good a person you are, and then they let you in. That's how membership works at a golf club. Nowhere else asks you to declare how wicked you are as you walk in the door. Actually, to belong to God's people requires you to say, I am a sinner. Now, church is full of... Actually, it's not full of sinners. There's always room for more. But the church is sinners gathered together. Those who require the forgiveness of God. For Israel, that tax was a reminder. You are wicked. You are not right with God until your sin is paid for. Jesus says the son doesn't pay that tax because the son already belongs to the family. Jesus is God's son who doesn't need atonement for himself. In fact, he's God's son who came to atone, to pay for others. Look back up at verse 22. As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus told them what was about to happen. The Son of Man, that's his way of talking about himself, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. I mean, fair enough, right? This is the first time he's told them that he's going to be betrayed, that it's one of them who's going to do it to him. But don't miss the point. What's going to happen is he's going to be killed and on the third day raised again. He will die for sin so effectively that new life will begin into eternity. Jesus doesn't need to pay the temple tax. He doesn't need the temple to meet God. He doesn't need to maintain this structure in order to be able to be part of God's family. Jesus is himself the temple where God meets man. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Well, God's Son, who atones, who pays for others. But have a look at something quite remarkable. Because Jesus also makes a claim about who we are. Did you notice that he includes Peter as a son? He says, then the sons are free. He's not just saying, I am free, but all who are sons of God. In fact, he then tells Peter, so that we won't offend, go and get the tax and pay it. He has included Peter in those who don't need to pay the temple tax. He has included Peter as being a son of the living God. What an astonishing idea. Will you think of yourself that way? That as you are included into Jesus, the son who came to pay, you too are adopted into God's family. It was in Galatians chapter 4. If you're a quick Bible flicker, you can come with me to Galatians 4. Otherwise, you just listen, I'll read it for you. As Paul sets it out for us in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, right? God sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law to do what? 
to redeem, to buy those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, right? speaking to God as our Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir. In this little passage about taxes and fish, Jesus is pointing out, I am a son, this is not a tax I pay, and you have been adopted in as sons with me, such that all the blessings that belong to Jesus, think about that for a minute, what belongs to God himself becomes our inheritance. Isn't that tremendous? You might think of your life as a bit weak, a bit miserable, a bit poor and pathetic. Maybe you don't. Maybe your life is amazing. But you look around and you go, is this it? No. No, this is not it. You are with Jesus an heir of all that belongs to him. No, Peter, you don't have to pay this tax either. Because in Jesus, atonement is done. Sin is dealt with. God meets man in the spirit he gives us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The temple is no longer needed, Peter. You don't pay this tax. Your family, you belong to the king. Which if the verses finished there would be great. Like if it just finished there, we don't have to pay the tax at the end. Would make this passage so simple. Why the whole thing with the fish, Jesus? Like you've just told Peter that we don't have to pay this tax. So don't pay it and be done with it, right? It's those passages that you look at as a preacher and you go, what am I supposed to do with that, right? <laughs> but actually, I think in that little set of events, we see the heart of the Christian message. We see the heart of Jesus himself. Because he is the son of God. He's the perfect one. He's the one who kept the law like no one else could. He's the eternal one who came to die in our place, to atone for our sin, to take on our sin so that we might gain his inheritance. <clears throat> but you see, this is how he teaches us how to live. Have a look again at verse 27. Those very first words there. So we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast out a hook, take the first fish, open your mouth and pay the tax for me and for you. By rights, Jesus could have said, this law does not apply to me. This is not a tax that I have to pay. In fact, he didn't pay it. He's the son. It makes no sense for him to pay the tax. A random fish paid the tax. You see, in this strange miracle of a fish with a coin, Jesus fulfills righteousness while still being true to who he is. He's the son. He's not paying that tax. But the tax was paid so as to not offend. Jesus voluntarily placed himself under a law that he didn't have to keep for the sake of other people. 
That's a very powerful principle. That is what Jesus does. How is it that the sons of the king live? You could be tempted to become very arrogant, couldn't you? Very proud, very self-serving. I am the heir of the living God. The universe belongs to me. Gee, you could get proud off the back of that, couldn't you? You might think of yourself rather highly. You might start to become self-serving. But in fact, what Jesus teaches us is that what he came to do is to serve others. To love at great cost. To sacrifice. Again, in Galatians, the next bit after what we read, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul sets out how the sons live. Listen to this, chapter 5 and verse 13. You were called to be free, brothers and sisters. We have the freedom of the air, but, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to serve yourself, but serve one another through love. The whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbour as yourself. How do the sons of the king live like Jesus, voluntarily sacrificing? I mean, Jesus, he is the son of God who does not need atonement, who atoned for us, who adopts us into his family and calls us to live like he did, sacrificing for others. Isn't that a cool passage? All wrapped up in this teaching about tax and fishing. So where do we land? Where do we make this kind of rubber hit the road? Well, I want to tell you three things. I want you to see Jesus rightly. I mean, Jesus can be coloured by all sorts of things, right? The, the religious Jesus of the stained glass windows, the hippie Jesus of the love and peace movement, the new age Jesus of the transcendent spirituality, the Hindu Jesus of the example of living the perfect life. They see Jesus rightly. He's the son of the living God who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but instead gave it up to serve his enemies, to love those who were in rebellion against his father, even to the point of death and death on a cross, who as a result of that was raised into glory to live forevermore at the right hand of the Father and gather his people to come and live with him. It begins with seeing Jesus rightly so that you can then see yourself rightly. Here's the second thing we need to take away from this. You need to be able to see yourself rightly. The path to sonship, the path to belonging to God only goes through Jesus. There is no other. He is the only son who atones. He's the only one who can remove the burden of the temple tax, so to speak. Who can make it so that you can come straight into the family of God. You can become an heir through nothing you have done and through nothing you can do. Because he does it all. And if you have walked that path, then see yourself rightly. You are the son of God. You are the daughter of the living God. You are an heir with Jesus of all the blessings that belong to him. 
Never let go of that. Don't let the things of this world somehow distract you from the glory that belongs to you in Jesus, from the tremendous treasure that is yours. It's winter time. Life's hard in the winter. We get the blues. But keep your eyes on Jesus. Know who He is. Know who you are. So that, thirdly, you might live as a son. Live as a daughter of God. Live as somebody who has been transformed, who's been bought. You are no longer your own. You are His, that you might live His way. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It requires us to change our sense of self. I wonder if we need to take a little bit more to heart. Love your neighbour as yourself. We're good at loving ourselves, by and large. I'm tired, I guess I'll go have a rest. I'm a bit stressed, I'm going to take a mental health day. I'm hungry, mmm, chicken burgers, right? Like We provide for ourselves, instinctively. I mean, some of us maybe get depressed and it's a bit harder to look at you, right? Like, there's, there's times and seasons in life where it gets easier and it gets harder, but by and large, we work hard to care for ourselves. Can you say that about how you love those around you? Love your neighbour as yourself. Maybe that's something to take away and to dwell on. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the example of the Son who died, the reality of the transformation that we are now His children, would shape us. That we in turn would live like Him. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what the Lord Jesus has done. And we praise you that he came to die. We praise you that his death was the atonement that we needed, the redemption that purchased us out of sin into your family. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Please would you teach us to live as he lived, to be sacrifices to be lovers, to know we are yours. And so every day, thank you for it and seek you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.